Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. My name is Phil Harland, Prof at York University in Toronto. We're continuing in the series, The Historical Jesus in Context. A reminder that this series focuses on what we can know using historical methods about the person Jesus, the Galilean Jesus from Nazareth, who lived in the first couple decades of the first century. In this sense, the purposes of this podcast are limited, as are any attempts to get at such an obscure figure of history as 2,000 years ago. In the last episode, we started to delve into the evidence for the form of Jesus' teaching and some of the content, or at least the focus of his content, namely on the Kingdom of God. And we saw that we can say with some level of probability that Jesus was perceived as a teacher, among his contemporaries, and that his teaching focused on this idea of the Kingdom of God. In this episode, we are moving further away from what we can say with a high level of probability using historical methods, and we're going to explore some of the details regarding what it may have been that Jesus meant by the Kingdom of God. We'll get into some of the scholarly debates over what the Kingdom of God meant to Jesus. In particular, we'll be asking the question of, was the Kingdom of God and Jesus' conception a present idea or a future idea? And this is closely related to the scholarly debate over whether or not Jesus is apocalyptic, corresponding to a future kingdom, or whether Jesus was non-apocalyptic, corresponding to a more present, here and now, idea about what the Kingdom of God is, or the reign of God. We'll soon see that it's not necessarily the case that you have to choose between Jesus' idea of the kingdom being a present thing and Jesus' idea of the kingdom being an imminently future thing. It's possible that there's a combination of those elements in what Jesus conceived to be the kingdom of God. So I hope you enjoy this episode and come again. In the next episode, we'll be getting into Jesus as healer and exorcist and how he fit perhaps those roles within first century Galilee and Judea. at the question of the present aspect of Jesus' conception of kingdom of God and the future aspect of Jesus' conception of the kingdom of God. Now this is the very issue over which most scholars debate what did Jesus mean when he used the phrase kingdom of God. Virtually all scholars will agree that he meant reign of God like I've explained to you, that it's God's rule that is being talked about. The question though is whether or not Jesus thought of God's rule being already fully present, already fully present, or whether or not Jesus, when he used the phrase kingdom of God, thought of it as something that is primarily or considerably imminently future. Is the kingdom of God something that's already completely here, or is it something that God is going to intervene in and establish in a full way soon and very soon? So there's not much difference between present and future here. The argument between the scholars is, isn't is it uh, already present or is it oh, several thousand years down the line? No. The debate is between whether Jesus thought it was already present or whether he thought it was going to happen any moment. Even 
whether or not he thought he played a role in it happening any moment. So let's talk about the material that scholars point to who suggest it is a future kingdom. Remember that it's Sanders, E.P. Sanders, is one of these scholars who argues very strongly, you can disagree or agree with it, but he argues and pulls together quite a bit of evidence that suggests that Jesus had in view a future kingdom where God would intervene in an apocalyptic way to establish that reign over his territory and where God would set up a new kingdom and uh, establish a perfect place for the righteous to live in forever. Remember that whole apocalyptic scenario. So people like Sanders and also Bart Ehrman has that. He agrees with Sanders on this and focuses more on the future elements, although they have a way of accounting for the present elements as well. We'll soon see. But scholars like this that think that Jesus taught about a future kingdom of God that was imminently going to happen, look at things like Jesus' temple actions, the overturning of the tables, and interpret that as a symbolic destruction of the temple. We've already encountered that. They point to the sayings attributed to Jesus, where Jesus says, this temple will be destroyed. They put that together, that idea of Jesus having the idea of the temple being destroyed, and they link it up with the idea that he's an apocalyptic thinker who thinks God is going to intervene and wipe out evil and also wipe out the temple and restore a new temple that is perfect. Similar thinking to what the Dead Sea sect thought. Remember how we talked about them looking forward to a new temple with a new priesthood? That Jesus would have thought like that. So that's how these scholars deal with those sayings, and they would give a high importance to those sayings. They also point to the evidence about Jesus having 12 disciples. If Jesus really did have 12 disciples, it's possible to suggest that Jesus conceived his own disciples as representative of the 12 tribes of Israel, and that he looked forward to the restoration of Israel under his disciples. And so that's how E.P. Sanders and Ehrman think of it. And they think of that as waiting for God to establish his reign in a full way so that the 12 disciples can rule over the restored Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. So that is the type of evidence that these scholars point to that links up with the idea of a future but imminently coming apocalyptic kingdom. Let's take a look at this banqueting in the kingdom. There's a couple of sayings attributed to Jesus that have to do with banqueting in the kingdom that are usually emphasized by historians who like to say that the kingdom of God is a future thing in Jesus' conception. Those who argue that Jesus himself thought of the kingdom as an apocalyptic, future, but imminently future thing, point to these sayings in particular. Mark 14.25 is one of them. And obviously scholars can debate, well, did this really go back to Jesus and all that? So we're still in that shaky condition but I'm putting together how they, the approach can be taken to seeing the concept of the kingdom of God as future. In the midst of the final meal that Jesus has with his disciples in Mark's gospel, he gives them bread and gives them drink, and then he says this, Truly I tell you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So sayings like this suggest that Jesus is thinking of a future thing to happen that the kingdom of God, the reign of God, is imminently coming, and that you can look forward to a banquet in that context. Another saying that goes along with this is about banqueting in the kingdom again. This one is in Luke and in Q, it seems. It's this one from Luke chapter 13, verses 28 to 29. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrown out. 
Then people will come from east and west, from the north and south, and will eat in the kingdom of God. Indeed, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. So this whole idea of that Jesus conceived of it as a future imminently coming kingdom and thought of this idea of a, a banquet to celebrate the establishment of God's reign. It's that type of thing that becomes a basis for making an argument for a future kingdom. There's more to it than that, but that's one of the most solid ones in terms of this multiple attestation and likely early. It comes from Q. Those who argue for the present kingdom do so with certain parables of Jesus and certain sayings of Jesus. In other words, there's times where Jesus' sayings are attributed to Jesus that sound like Jesus is saying, it's already now the kingdom of God. John Dominic Crossan would be one to really emphasize this one. Then when and where is it? Question. The answer that Jesus gives is preserved in Q, in Luke 17, and in Gospel of Thomas, which may be independent. Let me read you the Gospel of Thomas version from uh, saying number 113. Jesus' disciples said to him, When will the kingdom come? Jesus' answer is this. It will not come by watching for it. It will not be said, look here or look there. Rather, the Father's kingdom is spread out upon the earth, and people don't see it. So this, definitely, is material pointing to a present sort of conception as part of the way that Jesus thinks of the kingdom of God. Scholars like John Dominic Crossan emphasize this as the main and only way Jesus thought of the kingdom of God, and then would argue he was not apocalyptic, and would say that the sayings that are apocalyptic, that Sanders likes and that Ehrman likes, actually don't go back to Jesus. I mean, oversimplifying it, but that's how it works. It's possible to see both of these conceptions, though, as something that likely goes back to Jesus. It's not impossible. Remember that the apocalyptic notion, this is what I'm explaining to you, and it'd be more along the lines of what Ehrman might say. Remember that the nat nature of the future reign of God that Jesus speaks of in the sayings that are attributed to him is imminently future. It's almost like it's already happening. It's not some distant future thing. It's like now the kingdom of God is coming. So you can reconcile that with the idea that it's already here too. It's begun. So this is the way of seeing a compatibility, or a better way of putting it, as seeing that both of these ideas were in Jesus' mind, perhaps, when he taught about the kingdom of God. In some way, Jesus felt that his teaching was part of what was beginning to establish the kingdom of God already. That God was working to establish the kingdom already. That it is already created. That God's reign is already taking place in a more full way. But at the same time, there are still future events to take place that will finalize it. This is how I think the historical Jesus worked with it. But when I state that, I don't have highly probable status for it. We already know how difficult it is to get that. We already know that it's the execution of Jesus is highly probable. We already know that it's the baptism of Jesus is highly probable. Everything else beyond that, using historical methods, is not able to be established with that degree of likelihood. And this is how you can end up with very different portraits of the historical Jesus, isn't it? Because of that, the very nature of our sources and the nature of historical methods lead to that. So I'd be more in line with this idea of him as an apocalyptic prophet, wouldn't I? More in line with what Ehrman and Sanders say. However, I would say that Crossan has a very good point on the important element of the here and now in Jesus' conception of the kingdom of God, that it's already taking place. We began with what was more probable and worked our way to things that are perhaps unlikely. 
What was more probable is Jesus was a teacher, that he taught using the methods of parables and aphorisms, that the content of his teaching was about the kingdom of God. Those things are more solid. When you go to the next stage of what exactly did Jesus mean by the kingdom of God is where you're working in less solid ground. But that you can nonetheless make arguments and develop theories about what it was. And that's what every scholar who does it is doing. We just simply have no way of using the historical methods to say with certainty what Jesus did or did not say. About the inhabitants of the kingdom. There are several parables that hint at what Jesus may have thought regarding who would be in this reign of God, who would be important, who would be considered significant within this fully established power of God over his creation. There's an ongoing theme throughout various sayings of Jesus that are multiply attested and are mostly early, a reversal theme. What I mean by that is there are many teachings of Jesus that have Jesus refer reversing status. Rich will be poor, poor will be rich. First and the last. The sinners, the righteous. This idea of Jesus hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. The reversal of the normal categories of who is deserving. So this reversal theme is widespread in all kinds of sayings of Jesus. And likely reflects an idea Jesus had. In terms of the people who think they have it, won't have it. By the way, this may apply to the issue of how Jesus may have related to the Pharisees. Today, we're in the story, we're going to talk about the gospel's portrayal of the Pharisees and the difficulty in using any of that for the historical Pharisees. But one point you could make is, within the reversal theme of many of Jesus' teachings, it would make sense for him to say, the ones who think they're the most righteous aren't, in fact, righteous. The ones who are the most religious are the ones who aren't going to be in it. Would fit with the reversal theme, wouldn't it? The parable of the dinner invitation is the one you read at some length. This rings a little bit of that other rabbi, Johannan ben Sakai, who gave that parable about a banquet and used it to illustrate something else. But the point is, both Jesus and that other first century teacher had a similar style of using a story about a banquet in order to make a point. But here in Jesus' case, the story about the banquet or the dinner and being invited to a dinner is being used to illustrate what the inhabitants of God's established reign will be who the inhabitants of God's kingdom will be. It's multiply attested. It's in the Gospel of Thomas as well. Again, it's even more significant if you believe Thomas is independent. In other words, we have Matthew's version of it, Luke's version of it, both from Q, so one source, really, and then Thomas's separate version of it. Here's Thomas's version of it. Gospel of Thomas, saying number 64. Jesus said, A person was receiving guests. When he had prepared the dinner, he sent his slave to invite the guests. The slave went to the first and said to that one, My master invites you. That one said, Some merchants owe me money. They are coming to me tonight. I have to go and give them instructions. Please excuse me from dinner. Each of these invited guests are going to turn down the invitation. They're all going to have a reason or an excuse. The slave went to another and said to that one, My master has invited you. That one said to the slave, I have bought a house and I have been called away for a day. I shall have no time. The slave went to another and said to that one, My master invites you. That one said to the slave, My friend is to be married, and I am to arrange the banquet. I shall not be able to come. Please excuse me from dinner. The slave went to another and said to that one, My master invites you. That one said to the slave, I have bought an estate, and I am going to collect the rent. I shall not be able to come. Please excuse me. 
the slave returned to the master who was running the banquet, right? And said to his master, those whom you invited to dinner have asked to be excused. The master said to his slave, go out on the streets and bring back whoever you find to have dinner. Random inhabitants of the kingdom of God is a way of interpreting this parable of Jesus. How does the Gospel of Luke finish off this parable? He has a little bit of a different ending. Let me read it. And this actually fits with a theme of Luke himself. Redaction of Luke. And it does fit with Jesus' conception as we know it in other sayings. The end of the parable in Luke's Gospel goes like this. Then the owner of the house became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Those are all favorite terms of Luke. However, we do have sayings of Jesus that are early saying, blessed are the poor. The banquet is a kingdom, isn't it? In the story that's being told. Jesus drawing on the story of a banquet to illustrate what the kingdom of God is like and to explain who is in the kingdom of God. And the idea is, of the conclusion of the parable, is people are in the kingdom who you don't expect to be in the kingdom. Not only that, but the randomness of it. Go out into the streets, whoever the hell you find will be in the kingdom of God. That's quite the thing, isn't it? This may go back to the historical Jesus. This randomness, this reversal theme connects with it. Namely, the people who are going to be in this, under this reign of God are not the ones you expect it to be. Is recurrent in the teachings of Jesus. The unexpected nature of who's in the kingdom likely goes back to the historical Jesus. There's other sayings you could explore, including ones that John Dominic Crossan emphasized as nobodies are in the kingdom, as he puts it. It's the nobodies of society that are in Jesus' conception of the kingdom of God. The other one that's often pointed out, obviously, is the one we saw in that inaugural sermon. Blessed are the poor, woe to the rich. And that being a concept of the poor will receive reward in the future, the rich will be punished in the future. The poor will be in the kingdom of God, in the conception of Jesus. Remember that most of his audience are peasants, and they're poor peasants. You already have the economic situation you've learned. Economics situation is not great for the peasantry. They do look forward to being able to have food to eat in order to survive. And so Jesus is teaching in that context that they are the ones who are going to be fed in the future kingdom. Having outlined some of these main issues with regard to the kingdom of God, let me point out a connection that we'll come to. There's connections between each of these roles that I'll be outlining. We've already talked about Jesus as Galilean in the role of a Galilean. Jesus as a Judean, if Galilee is in fact influenced by Judean culture, like we argue. We've talked about Jesus among his contemporary educated groups, and Jesus as teacher. Now we're going to come back and talk about Jesus as healer and exorcist. These roles of Jesus are not all totally unconnected, even though in order to approach teaching it, we've done that, talked about them individually. We're going to soon see they're all interconnected. But the connection between Jesus' teaching of the kingdom of God and his role of healer and exorcist may be this. There is one saying of Jesus and other hints that Jesus may have thought of his own healing activity as a sign that God's reign is already being established. The end has already begun. It hasn't completed, but it's already begun. And it's this saying here that we're going to have to deal with when we come back about Jesus as an exorcist. Luke chapter 11, verse 20. A saying attributed to Jesus that says this, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out the demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Could the historical Jesus 
have believed that his own activities were playing a role in the establishment of God's kingdom. He may have believed that. And we'll get into this idea of the perception of Jesus being a healer. That concludes this episode. I hope you'll come again. In the meantime, you can browse my website at philipharlan.com. I like early Christianity. The opening music of this series in the podcast is Paradise Lost by Namgyal Lamo, a Tibetan artist. You can find her on the web and you can buy her CDs at Amazon.